Lord, thank you so much for the gift of your grace. You were pierced through for our transgressions. We do not forget that and we do not take it lightly. So as we open up your word this morning, Lord, I pray, Father, um, your Holy Spirit would just make it alive in us. Help us to see what we need to see in our own lives. And uh, make the application where necessary. Give us the strength, Lord God, to, to do it as you convict us. And encourage us, Lord God, in those areas in which we're, we are following you. Give grace, Lord God, where we need it most. That we might bless and honor you. For Jesus' sake I pray. Amen. Well, we're winding up this little mini-series on the power of words, the power of our, our words. And... Uh, how many of you have been tested in this area of, of your words throughout this little four-part series? Anyone? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. I'm raising mine. That's the way it goes. I hope some of these thoughts that we've been dealing with have been coming to mind and um, causing us to remember what God's told us. It's a classic movie, The Christmas Story. Probably some of you have seen it. A nostalgic look at growing up in Gary, Indiana through the eyes of a boy named Ralphie. Anybody seen that movie? Favorite movie. Favorite movie. And you could start this sermon with this illustration. There's a scene in the movie which takes place in a schoolyard at recess in the middle of winter. And this graphic description immediately transported me back almost 35 years to a playground of St. Clair Catholic School where I got my first three years of formal education. And I could still picture my frosty breath curling around my face as the crisp winter air surrounded a playground full of swing sets, seesaws, and impish boys testing each other's wits. I remember actually experiencing somewhat of what the scene depicts in this movie. Two boys surrounded by their classmates arguing whether or not a person's tongue will stick to a metal pole in below-freezing weather. Eventually, one of the boys succumbs to the infamous triple-dog dare. Wearily, he sticks out his tongue and gingerly touches it to the school flagpole. And guess what happens? You know the rest of the story, right? It gets stuck. Predictably, the recess bell rings. Everybody runs into the school, except, that is, the hapless victim. And when the teacher finally looks out the window, she sees the boy writhing in pain, his tongue frozen to the flagpole, unable to break free. I read on the internet this week that there was actually a college student that missed his final exam because he did this. He and his buddy were walking to take the exam and they were arguing about the same thing. He stuck his tongue to a pole. Literally, the fire department had to come and get him loose. Missed his final I can sympathize with that because it happened to me, only in my case it happened in the middle of the summertime, believe it or not, and it was my lip that was glued to a frozen fudgicle, right? Now it's possible that you haven't been in any of those situations yourself, but I would venture an educated guess that almost all of you know what it's like to have your tongues or your lips get you into big, big trouble, probably in the last four weeks. All of us have suffered the pain of a wrong-timed, ill-spoken, poorly-aimed word or words. Like this icy grip 
of a metal pole in winter, bitter, boastful, critical, angry, and lying words grip us and hold us hostage to undeniable embarrassment, unbearable pain, and inevitable consequences, right? As we've been discovering, words are very powerful. Words reveal what's really inside of our hearts, and once they spill out, they're nearly impossible to recover. If it's true that the quality of our words indicates the condition of our hearts, then we must surely get a handle on how we use them. It's an area in which we all need incredible discipline. That's what we've been looking at. And we're going to finish that up today. Paul, in his letter to the first century church at Ephesus, gave us four very practical, relevant commands as to how we might get control of our words. And last week we looked at two. We're going to finish it today. Turn to Ephesians 4, verses 29 to 32, if you would. Let me read through those verses again, refresh our memories and what Paul has to say. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So where do we start with this? Well, Paul says we start by making sure that everything we say is worthwhile. Whenever we speak, our words, first of all, should advocate growth. That's one of the things we talked about last week in verse 29. Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. What does edification mean? Somebody tell me. To build one another up. Worthwhile words then are effective words. They're effective. They should build up and not tear down. They should aim at healing, not hurting. So things like gossip and innuendo and flattery and fault-finding and degradation and filthiness, which we dealt with last week, all classify as unwholesome, corrupt, worthless speech. They don't advocate growth. They assassinate character. And Paul says, don't let any of it come out of your mouth. Speak only words that are good for the building up of each other. Worthwhile words are effective words. Now, some of you, I've noticed, some of you have taken the Facebook 429 challenge that I issued last week. And by the way, for those of you that didn't figure it out, the 429 not only means 429 days, but it also is tied to Ephesians 429. How many of you knew that? Okay, then it bears explanation. But a lot of you have taken that challenge and started writing status lines on your Facebook page that are encouraging and edifying, which give immense deposits of grace to those who hear or read. They're worthwhile and effective, and I've been encouraged by what you guys have been writing. So thank you. I want to encourage you to keep it going. Ratchet up the grace even more, because it's having an effect. Worthwhile words are also essential words, Paul says, according to the need of the moment. They're essential. Colossians 4, 6 sums this up well. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how to respond to each person. They're essential words. Thirdly, Paul says worthwhile words are enabling words, that it might give grace to those who hear. 
We need to discipline our speech to know when to speak and when not to speak. Well-chosen, well-placed, well-timed words are an incredible ministry. You guys wrote some yellow cards out last week. It was awesome. I've heard some feedback from people that have received those cards. It's been great. Paul Tripp said that because of our words, because our words have power and direction, they always produce some kind of harvest. You believe that to be true? They produce some kind of harvest. And therefore, we should temper them, tailor them, and flavor them to advocate growth. In other words, choose to speak redemptively. Choose to speak or write redemptively. Okay. Secondly, verse 30, Paul says that we must guard against grief. And I only touched on this briefly last week. We're going to flesh it out a little bit more today. As followers of Christ... One of the great motivations that we have to guard our speech is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Amen? Look at Ephesians chapter 1 for a minute. Verse 13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were, what's it say? Sealed in Him with who? The Holy Spirit of promise. When you came to Christ and you became a believer in Christ, listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise and with the Holy Spirit of promise. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. So then, because of that, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God By the Spirit. You hear what that's saying? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You individually and we as a corporate group. When the character of our speech tends to degrade or defame or destroy people, especially the brothers and sisters in Christ, it breaks the heart of the Holy Spirit. It breaks his heart, who lives inside of us. He hears every single word we say, every whisper. And he knows the thoughts. So Paul says, guard against grieving him. And I love the way the Phillips version of this verse goes. J.B. Phillips translates it like this. Never wound the Holy Spirit. He is, remember, the seal upon you of your eventual full redemption. He's the architect of God's spiritual house. And when cruelty and slander comes out of our lips and tears down another member of the church, it tears down a part of the house that the Spirit is trying to build, right? The Holy Spirit is God's personal mark of ownership on us. The Spirit's presence in us proves that we are our authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And to speak and to act in ways that are contrary to His character inflicts the worst kind of pain upon God. And that pain, Paul says, is grief. 
And some of you know personally the unbearable pain and grief caused by death and divorce and infidelity and betrayal. And growing up, many of you have felt the crushing weight of heartless words upon your life. The words affected you then and they probably still do today. You remember them. That's how much they hurt. So if you know what I'm referring to by that, then you have an intimate understanding of what careless words do to the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, don't grieve him. These venomous, volcanic, and vicious words that we speak sometimes not only breaks God's law, but it breaks God's heart. Every careless word is like driving one more nail into the hands of Christ, drawing one more drop of blood, one more agonizing groan, one more painful tear. And you know what they tell the world? Jesus said in John 13, right? He said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you what? Well, guess what this tells the world when we scream and yell and we tear each other down in the church? What does that tell the world? It tells the world, I really don't care about Christ. I don't care about Christ's church or his teaching. That's what it says. Proverbs 18.7 says, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. How often have I been snared by my own tongue? How often have you? When our spirits are in line with the spirit of Christ, our words will advocate growth, will guard against grief, will not live the way that we used to live before we came to know Christ. Instead, we will live an entirely new, in an entirely new way, the way of Jesus. However, I believe that the crisis we face today is primarily not a crisis of words. We need far more than a change of vocabulary, right? What do we need? We need a change of heart. We need a change of heart, and only Christ can do that. But once he's become part of us, after we've received him as Lord and Savior, we have this responsibility then to allow him to transform us from the inside out. That's why Paul emphatically forces us to face the issue when he writes in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of of their heart. Skip down to verse 20. You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, that is, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And he says, therefore, therefore what? Because of what I just said, laying aside falsehood, what's the first thing that he deals with? Because we've been saved in Christ. What does he say, therefore? 
the first thing he deals with is a mouth in our tongue. Therefore, speak truth to each one of, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. In other words, Paul is indicating it's not just simply about advocating growth in our speech and guarding against grieving the spirit. It's about a complete and total turnaround in our attitude we must then eliminate the grudge. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. The American Heritage Dictionary defines the word grudge as, quote, a feeling of deep-seated resentment or ill will. Resentment literally means to feel again. Did you know that? And that's what resentment is, isn't it? It's going over and over and over in your heart and in your emotions, those bad feelings that you had when you were first offended. Philip Yancey wrote, Resentment clings to the past, relives it over and over, picks each fresh scab so that the wound never heals. That's resentment. Someone else put it this way, Resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is the deliberate decision to nurse the offense until it becomes a black, furry, growling grudge. Look closely at verse 31. Read those words in your mind. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. What do they even give you the feeling of as you're reading through them? These are words which paint not only the dark, murky picture of a grudge, but a grudge with an attitude, right? They're heavy-duty words. But when our words are edged with a grudge, they contain poisonous barbs designed to pierce and hold the victim in its grasp. Our attitude becomes fiery and explosive and condemning. Paul says, let all of it every last trace of it be dumped once and for all time. Notice what he says there. Let it be put away from you along with all malice. Some of your translations may say, get rid of it, right? Get rid of it. Well, that's nice, Paul. Get rid of it. How do I get rid of it? Paul doesn't say how to get rid of it. He just tells us to get rid of it. Back up, he talks about the Holy Spirit living in our lives. That's how we get rid of it. Walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, right? He says, get rid of it. Let it be dumped. Why? Because there are things that tear people and churches apart in those kinds of attitudes. They destroy relationships, weaken the body, annihilate our testimony. So get rid of venomous words. And the first thing he says is get rid of the bitterness. Bitterness, let it be put away from you. Bitter words come from a bitter heart. 
And make no mistake about it, bitterness, like a burning match, ultimately burns the one who continues to hold on to it. Right? Bitterness is the inflamed byproduct of smoldering resentment. It results in constant antagonism. It rears its ugly head in the form of cutting statements that don't need to be made. It's characterized by the telltale scowl and cold stare. And generally it makes a person pretty repulsive if they're full of, full of bitterness, right? Bitterness, it's been said, is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Who wants to be around a bitter person? When words are bitter, we essentially poison everyone that they come into contact with. And we wonder why nobody wants to be around us. Walter Wangren once used the female spider to drive the point home. I've told this story many, many times because it's so interesting. He says that a female spider is often a widow for embarrassing reasons. She eats those who come her way. Sometimes a fly in her web will appear to be whole, but the spider has drained the insides dry so that the fly has become its own hollow casket. You ever notice that? You see, because the spider doesn't have a stomach, she is incapable of digesting anything inside of her. Consequently, through tiny punctures, she injects her poisonous digestive juices into the victim so that its insides are broken down and turned into soup. Isn't that exactly what we do to a person when we issue bitter, venomous words? Wangren graphically explains the soup she swills, even as most of us swill souls of one another after having cooked them in various enzymes. Guilt, humiliations, cruel love, there are a number of fine acidic mixes. And some among us are so skilled with the hypodermic word that our dear ones continue to sit up and to smile quite as though they were still alive. He's a good writer. How many souls have we dissolved with our bitter words? How many walking caskets have you created? How many people in church communities, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been sucked empty by unwholesome talk? Paul says, get Rid of the bitterness. Get rid of it. In the words of author Steve Farrar, it's time to grow up. It's time to move on. It's time to quit being the victim. Your bitterness is grieving the Spirit of God. Your bitterness is poisoning your soul. Your bitterness is slowing your race and letting the enemy gain ground on you. Unquote. Now, you may not feel like this is pertinent to you. Say like Tony Evans, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, let it pass. Let it pass. Our words, friends, should be profitable, not poisonous, Paul says, flavored with grace. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, look after each other so that none of you will miss out on the special favor of God. Watch out that no bitter root of unbelief rises up among you, for whenever it springs up, many are corrupted by its poison. 
Mark Buchanan, in his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, talks about a time he's a pastor up in Vancouver. And uh, a number of years ago, he says, I was struggling with my attitude toward another Christian. I fed my resentment and bitterness to the point where at times I hated this person. One day when I was thinking nasty thoughts about him, isn't that interesting how we identify one day when I was thinking nasty thoughts about this guy? I heard my son come in the basement, slam the door, go to his room and start crying. I went to him and asked what was wrong and he'd been playing goalie in a game of road hockey with some school friends and he told me that he'd let in a rash of goals and his teammates started to taunt him, mock him, telling him he was useless, telling him to go home, they'd stand a better chance with an empty net than with him in it. Mark Buchanan, who's a pastor, said, I was furious. I was enraged and I started putting on my shoes to march down the road and call those boys to account. Give them all the hard drubbing with my tongue. Mark, God said, where are you going? To straighten this matter out, Lord, no one treats my son that way. You have a father's heart, God said. Yes, you hate it when someone hurts one of your children, don't you? Yes, God said, I hate that too. Mark says, and I understood in the most visceral way, and I think for the very first time, that I could not claim to love God and hate my brother. If I love God, I'll love what he loves. I'll love his children, all of them. Or else, I'll break his heart. As Paul says, get rid of the bitter words, the venomous ones. Secondly, he, in verse 31, he says, get rid of the vengeful words. Let all anger be put away from you. And anger refers to a deep internal furnace of anger that is constantly ready to boil. That's what this word means in this text. It's anger that colors every aspect of our lives. How we view people. How we view situations and every detail of life falls into this, this vortex of anger that drives us. And when that kind of hateful emotion is directed at people, Jesus warned that it is as serious as murder. Read Matthew 5, 21 and 22 this week. Paul says, get rid of it. Get rid of the vengeful words. Get rid of the violent words. He also says, let all clamor be put away from you. Clamor is simply the loss of self-control that results in yelling and shouting. And we've all done it, haven't we? We've all done it. At least all of us who have less than perfect kids have done it. Almost always happens about 30 minutes before dinner and 20 minutes before church, right? Clamor is loss of control and it can inflict deep wounds that may never heal if you don't watch what you say. Parents, get rid of the clamor if it characterizes your house. It doesn't originate with the Spirit of God. It's a byproduct of our flesh nature. It's not the Spirit. Galatians 5, 19 and 20 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy. You're all sitting there going, phew, I got by all those. But then he says, outbursts of anger. NIV says, fits of rage. Deeds of the flesh, not of the spirit. You know what the fruit of the spirit is? Self-control. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. So get rid of the violent words. Get rid of vicious words, Paul says in this verse. Let all slander be put away from you. Slander. I don't even like the sound of that word, do you? Slander. If there is one thing that we need to dump, it's that. Slander. The world is engulfed in slander. It characterizes every political campaign. It's on the headlines of every newspaper and tabloid in the supermarket. People have made millions of dollars off slanderous magazines. All they do is slander. Shows on television. Sadly, many churches are characterized and engulfed by slander. You know what slander is? It's the ongoing defamation of someone fueled by an intense hatred within their heart. Slander is an absolute contradiction to true Christianity. Absolute contradiction. In fact, the word, the word that Paul used here is where we get our English word blasphemy. That's what the word is in the Greek. It's where we get blasphemy from. Slanderous words kill. They devour all who are in, in, in the path. They're the reflection of an evil, unforgiving heart and the opposite of a heart that loves. So when people engage in slander, you can rest assured that someone's going to get consumed. Right? I read of a zookeeper who tossed a hot dog into a snake pen. Two snakes immediately began to devour that stick of meat, one on either end. And when the two met in the middle, the snake with the larger mouth kept on going and completely consumed the other snake. You know what? Too often people are like snakes. Consuming one another with their vicious, slanderous words. And whoever has the biggest mouth usually consumes the other person, right? We were not called to slander each other, but to serve one another. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15 says this, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but... If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. See, the Word of God speaks directly to these things. Get rid of vile words, finally, Paul says, along with all malice. Malice. Interesting word. Malice refers to every evil inclination of the mind. Malice is the vile root of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. It's basically the summary of all those previous words. All of it spells one thing. It spells grudge. 
And there's only one way to deal with a grudge, Paul says. Get rid of it. Deep six it. Eliminate the grudge. So, how are you dealing with stuff like this? Are you allowing hurts to become hate? Maybe you feel that you have good reasons to nurse a grudge. You've been hurt. You've been run down. You've been lied to. You've been used and played the fool. And sometimes you feel, as the old Almond Brothers song laments, like you've been tied to the whipping post. And oh Lord, you feel like you're dying. Right? And so a grudge seems like your best option. But I want to ask you a question. A question that Dr. Phil always asks people on the show. How's that working for you? Is it working? Nursing that grudge? Max Lucado asked some very penetrating and personal questions about that. Has your hatred done you any good? Has your resentment brought you any relief, any peace? Has it granted any joy in your life? Let's say you get even. Let's say you get that person back. Let's say you get that person gets what they deserve. And then let's say your fantasy of fury runs its ferocious course and you return all your pain with interest on the other person. Then imagine yourself now standing over the corpse of the one that you hated at their funeral. Will you now be free? Will you now be free? No, it'll be worse. It'll be much worse. The answer is obvious. Get rid of it. Again, author Steve Farrar gets down and dirty with us on this issue. He says, if you are focusing on some person or what he or she did to you, you will not finish your race strong. You won't. You'll never make it. Because you're being conned and you're being set up by the devil. You can only finish strong if your eyes are on Jesus. There's only one way to eliminate the grudge. There's only one way to get rid of the grudge. Fix your eyes on Jesus and let him turn the grudge into an opportunity for showing grace. That's the way. That's exactly how Paul sums up this whole provocative passage in the last verse. He says, we must cultivate grace. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Philip Yancey wrote that grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. It's great. Paul's message is clear. We must speak to the world and each other, not with worthless words, but from winsome hearts. We must learn to cultivate grace. We must become dispensers of grace, offering grace on tap. Get that picture in your mind. Are you a grace dispenser? When someone pushes your button, do you dispense grace or grudge. If you were to receive $10 for every kind word you spoke about other people this past year and penalized $5 for every unkind, callous, or hurtful word, tell me, would you be rich or would you be poor? 
Only you can figure that out. God already knows. Sometimes we need to catch up with what God already knows, right? Cultivating grace then begins with comforting words. Be kind. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit also. It's the exact opposite of bitterness. One man has painted it as warm and attractive. It's goodness wearing a smile. It's goodness that draws you in by its warmth. You've been in the company of someone that has kind words like 99% of the time. You want to be around that person, don't you? Especially when you're feeling bad or angry. A person like that can just pull you right out of that, that slump. Kindness. Kindness is goodness wearing a smile, somebody said. Draws you in. It's like the comforting heat of a wood stove in the chill of winter. Not that I even want to think about winter right now. (laughs) Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love Kindness, one translation says, or mercy, which mercy is kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Luke 6, 35 says, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. True kindness is almost literally impossible to reject. It's attractive and it's healing. And our speech is one of the first places that kindness shows up, isn't it? Paul says, continually become kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. It's just not something that you do with words. It's something that you are inside. Jesus does it to you. Cultivating grace then requires a compassionate heart. He says, be tender-hearted. It's love on a gut level, in other words. A tender-hearted person is one of the most emotionally vulnerable people around. Their hearts are touched by the pain of others as well as by the joy of others. And that is something we desperately need today in our culture, isn't it? In our society and in the church. Because the world, world is a very cold and hard place. But in both speech and action alike, we become people who oftentimes would rather inflict hurt than initiate healing. And it stems from calloused hearts. We become cauterized, desensitized, and indifferent like the world. And speech reflects that. Don't hold loved ones hostage through all kinds of verbal cyanide. The missing ingredient has got to be compassion. You need to have compassion. As one writer observed, I won't feel inclined to hurt you when your pain is mine. Right? When your grief touches me. Compassionate hearts produce comforting words. Which gives evidence of Christ-like love. And so cultivating grace then, finally, Paul says, reflects Christ-like love. Look at what he says at the end of verse 32. 
forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Years ago, I heard this definition of forgiveness on the radio. Someone said, I don't even remember who said it, but they said, forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you back for hurting me. I suspect that if we really stopped and thought about it, about how much Christ has forgiven us, if we really just counted one day's worth of Christ's forgiveness in our life, that we could never in good conscience hold a grudge against anyone. I've discovered the hard way that the relationships I hold dear are in the greatest danger when I demand my way, when I insist on my rights, when I inflict my will, and when I fail to admit my wrong. The greatest relationships in my life are in danger when I do that. That's when relationships are in the most peril of blowing apart and sustaining damage that seems almost irreversible. When any of us reach that point in dealing with a hurt or a wrong suffered, you know, we are far, far removed from how God our Father has dealt with you and me in Christ, aren't we? Mark Twain once said that forgiveness is the fragrance that the flower leaves behind on the heel of the one who crushed it. Time and again, the Bible reminds me that because of Jesus Christ, I have not received the death wages that I have earned. Romans 6.23 I will never experience the rejection that I had coming, according to Romans 8.38. I will never have to worry about God reneging on His promise to hold and embrace me as one of His children. According to John 10, that's what grace is. It's undeserved generosity. It's a hug when I deserved a slap. It's a smile when I deserved a scowl. It's getting a savior when I deserved a judge. Isn't that what grace is? Proverbs 24, 29 says, Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. But rather, we should adopt the mindset which says, I will do for him what God has done for me. Right? That's called the platinum rule. And it's right here in Ephesians 4.32. Platinum rule goes like this. Do unto others as God has done unto you. Just as, Paul says, forgiving each other just as God has forgiven us. Just as. What has God done for you? What has he done for me? He's forgiven me for everything. He's forgiven you for everything. If you have faith in him, personal relationship with him, He hasn't withheld one ounce of forgiveness from any of us. He loves us unconditionally. Forgiveness, said Martin Luther King Jr., is not just an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. That's how God in Christ has forgiven us. Permanent attitude. Grace dispenser. Ephesians chapter 5. The next chapter. Right after verse 32. It's no... No surprise what Paul says next. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See, if we are to be imitators of, imitators of God and followers of Jesus, we must forgive freely, generously, spontaneously, wholeheartedly, eagerly, and completely. But that's not fair, you might protest. Well, you're getting warm. Grace is intensely unfair. That's one of the hardest things about grace. How can we who have been forgiven for so much forgive so little? When we speak against each other, hold grudges, gossip, criticize, we do not forgive. We make ourselves out to be, not to be as God, but above God. He forgives, right? Some of the most Christ-like words that we could ever utter out of our mouths. I forgive you. Do you know that Jesus said that more times than he said, I love you? Go in peace, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say, go in peace, I love you. Your sins are forgiven. How hard is that for us to say? Forgiveness is the ultimate expression of God's love, of Christ's love. He didn't have to say, I love you. He climbed up on the cross and he died. And he said, I forgive you. Keep fervent in your love for one another, wrote Peter, because love covers a multitude of sins. Forgiveness. That's what love does. Love means forgiveness. Robert Thornton shares these words. He said, in the middle of one of my parents' more memorable disagreements, father jumped up from the table and grabbed two sheets of paper. He said to my mother, let's make a list of everything we don't like about each other right now. So mom started writing. Big, big book, pen. Dad glowered at her for a few minutes and then wrote something on his paper. She wrote again and he watched her and every time she stopped, he would stop writing again. And they finally finished. Let's exchange complaints, dad said. And they gave each other their lists. Give mine back, mom pleaded. When she glanced at his sheet, because all down the page, Dad had written the words, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, Ken Davis, comedian Ken Davis, calls them the three greatest words on the face of the earth. I want to close with a little excerpt from one of his books. I can't, I'm not anywhere near as funny as Ken Davis. I'll just read you what he wrote. Three greatest words on the face of the earth. What could be better, I asked myself smugly, leaning back in a comfortable lounge chair on one of the country's most beautiful beaches. Spread out before me was the Gulf of Mexico. Sitting beside me was the opportunity personified. A man who wanted me to appear in one of his films. 
No, it wasn't a big budget action thriller. It was an industrial training film. (laughs) But that didn't matter to me. This was my big chance for the silver screen, that first big step to stardom. I gazed at the gripping script of our blockbuster, he said. I was oblivious to the fact that my daughter, Taryn, had slipped away from her mother and was waiting in a sewage lagoon. With a gorgeous beach at her disposal, Taryn had chosen to play in a little green pond with a very big smell. Later, she explained that she chose the sewage treatment lagoon over the beach because she liked the colors better. As I dreamed of stardom, Taryn was draping and reeking algae all over her body. And when she completely cloaked herself in the stringy goop, she came looking for me. She peeked up over a sand dune and saw me deep in discussion with the filmmaker. And here came my precious daughter galloping toward me, bathed in fumes with the potential to clear the beach. I didn't see or hear her coming. She hit me doing at least 30 miles an hour. At impact, the clammy slime unwrapped from her little body and wrapped itself all around me. I tried to leap upward, but her cold, smelly arms were clamped around my neck and the angle of the chair gave her the leverage to keep me down. She grabbed me by the hair, yanked my head around, looked deep into my eyes, and proclaimed, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I kill you with love because I'm the love monster. (laughs) And then she proceeded to kill me with sloppy, odorous kisses, Appalled and disgruntled and disgusted, the movie guy leapt to his feet and frantically brushed bits of algae from his fancy shirt, and he said to me, could you please ask her to leave until our business is finished? Dripping with goo and still in the grip of the love monster, Ken says, I responded, sir, our business is finished now. I had no desire to do business with someone who could remain unmoved by the words of a smelly, slime-covered child proclaiming, I love you, I love you, I love you. I don't know when the words I love you were first spoken to me, he says. My first memory of the words comes from a girlfriend who spoke them without knowing what they meant. Still, the words sounded so wonderful, just writing, a, just writing about it, he says, brings me back some powerful emotions. The words, I love you, shrink the universe to one moment in time. In that moment, nothing else matters. No one else exists. I love you gives meaning to life. When people find themselves in life-threatening situations, what is the thing that they want to say to people that, is closest, that are closest to them? I love you are often the last words spoken. They are the words we most want to hear. Sound of my wife, my children, and my grandchildren. Saying those words are absolute music to my ears. Ken says, whenever I read from the Bible, I am reminded that God knows all the darkest corners of my life. 
He knows my selfishness and my fear and my cowardice. He's aware of all the times that I've miserably failed. And yet he sacrificed his son for me. And with that act, God shouted, I love you. With more affection and more meaning than mere words could ever, ever have conveyed. I love you, God said. And that's what we're going to celebrate at this communion table right now. So I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think of the three greatest words that God ever uttered, not verbally, but physically through the act of Jesus dying on the cross so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. Close your eyes. I'm going to read basically a summary of this series from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil.